Hi everyone, this is Waylena, and I'm here to talk about free and open source software for planetarium content production and other immersive environments. Welcome to FOSDome. I want everyone to know that show notes can be found on my blog, FOSDome.com. I'll make sure to leave links for any software or tutorials mentioned in the episode. And if you like this episode and want to hear more like this, make sure to subscribe and rate it in your podcast listening software of choice. Today is Sunday, May 16th, 2021, and this is episode 10. Episode 10. Wow. This episode gets me halfway to that psychological hurdle of 20 episodes that I need to get past, as that is evidently where most podcasters run out of steam. I figure I'll still probably run out of steam, but at least I'll be above average in running out of steam, right? When I first thought about making a podcast back in 2019, I didn't want to limit it to just planetarium-related open source software, so I looked around to see if anyone else was doing it, and there was someone doing just that. Jason Van Gumster had put together a podcast called Open Source Creative, And I loved it. I listened through all the episodes uh, and they started in 2014 and ended in 2017. What? What? I screamed at my car speakers since I was driving at the time. (sighs) In any case, it was so close to what I wanted to do that I ended up just starting a blog instead and started the idea of maybe a, maybe limiting a podcast to planetarium related open source creative type stuff. Now, Jason did revive his podcast in 2020, and I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, I didn't even know he'd revived it, right? I had to get a new phone last year. Actually, it was a week where I had to get a couple new phones because they kept breaking in quick succession while I was traveling, but, but, but that's neither here nor there. So I was setting up the Pocket Casts app, and I was surprised that it showed new episodes. Hooray! And it was pretty awesome too, right? I even sent him some fan mail about it because it was really good. But it looks like he dropped off again in November. I was busy in the holidays and in January I thought, ooh, I'm going to catch up, but there was nothing new since November. But I'm hoping he'll be back. Now, looking back through the archive, uh, he disappeared between May of 2015 and November of 2016, so that does happen. I see that he is currently active on Facebook, so I'm not too worried about him. He'll be back. Now, what have I been up to lately? My planetarium is still closed to the public and uh, school groups from outside the college, and I am still mostly working for a different area of the college. I do what I can for the planetarium as time permits. Now, we know that this will continue through summer, but we aren't sure what will happen after that. Things are opening up at the state level, but I don't know how that will work at the college level. We'll, we'll, We'll just have to see. We did have a few virtual field trips this week. It was super nice to be back in the dome, even if only to broadcast some wonderful, uh, to some wonderful first grade classes. Oh, those kids were so much fun. I cannot wait to do kids shows in the dome again. The online programs are nothing like the live in-person experience under the dome. Okay, now on to this week's episode, episode 10, Open Source Digital Media Ups and Downs. 
In other words, this is an episode where I babble on and off complaining about stuff and complaining about complaining about stuff. So open source software is often referred to as being free as in speech, not free as in beer. Of course, I like free and open source software where it's both, but the idea here is that you can charge fees for open source software, but the source code must be freely available. So people can examine it, know what they're getting into, um, adapt it to their own needs. There are quite a few open source licenses out there, and I may cover those in a future episode because some of the more recent uh, licenses have been pretty, pretty cool in my opinion. So most open source software is made available for free, free as in beer, and undoubtedly that is what first got me to try it out myself. I wanted to give 3D graphics a try, so I discovered um, POV Ray. I, I call it POV Ray. Um, other people I've encountered call it Ray. Honestly, I don't usually encounter people talking about it, so it's one of those things where I pronounced it from reading. Um, but in any case, Pavre, POV Ray, it's uh, extremely tedious for what I wanted to learn. And on the discussion groups, I kept seeing people talk about Blender. Blender was not open source at the time, but it was freeware. And it was clearly stated that anything you created with it was yours. As Blender um, went through the process of becoming open source, I learned more about what that meant. Uh, also, Blender, uh, using Blender brought me to using Linux as a primary operating system. Then about that same time, there was a big hullabaloo with some company, um, SCO, I think it was, claiming to own Linux and shaking down companies to pay them for it. So there were a bunch of lawsuits and stuff. You know, that may merit its own episode too, come to think of it. Uh, lessons to be learned about tracking software lineage or something like that. Uh, anyway, it also had me learning more about what it meant for a project to be open source. As I learned more about the idea of open source software, the value of it being free as in speech became quite clear to me as something I wanted to support whenever possible. I liked the idea of being able to build software on my own system to get the best performance and to examine source code to find clues about how features are implemented. Um, now, I have built some packages on my systems to get a new feature early or to more quickly get a bug fix in between releases, but, but not lately. Um, I mean, I love doing that, but there's just no time when I need to make stuff. Lately, I've just been a plain Jane, ordinary user. And as a user, there uh, certainly are some ups and downs to open source digital media software. I talk frequently about some of the ups, you know, often being free as in beer, often multi-platform so I can use on both Windows and Linux. Uh, many have developer mailing lists so I can follow along with how the developers are thinking as they tackle problems, which for some weird reason gives me ideas for future feature suggestions too. Yet as a user, there are some downs to go with the ups. Things like uh, slow development and bug fixing um, and user interface changes. 
Now, to be fair, a lot of these downs I experience with commercial software as well, especially user interface changes, right? User interface changes are not always easy to handle. I, I always have a tough time when Microsoft changes a bunch of stuff in Office. Yes, at home I do use uh, LibreOffice, but uh, at work it's uh, all Microsoft and, you know, it's it's what we use at work, so it's what we use. And I'm, I'm fine with that because I'm not the one uh, supporting the systems there, uh, so that's, that, that's okay. Uh, so let's look at some of my favorite projects as uh, examples of ups and downs. Uh, we'll start with Blender and GIMP because I use those the most and maybe one more. We'll, we'll see what else I think up. Like I said, lots of babbling today. So Blender originally did have a pretty awful user interface uh, for wider audiences. I mean, it was an in-house tool set and uh, the features were, were pretty strong, but it was not easy to use coming at it from the outside. Now that changed, I mean, especially after they went uh, open source. Oh my goodness. Um, but people who, um, it still has the reputation of having a terrible interface and that has not been true for a long time. Oh my goodness. Um, in fact, uh, after the uh, the change that um, went from 2.4.9 version to 2.5, uh, honestly, the only thing that I saw people having serious trouble with was, um, just that it was still, uh, it was still right click to select for, for a long time. And that, that was changed more recently, but honestly, going back and forth between, uh, different 3d software, like when I took a Maya class, um, I found Maya difficult because I was used to blender, um, trying uh, Houdini for some of the really cool particle stuff. It was just a little frustrating because again, I was used to Blender. Uh, so people still who don't use Blender or are faced with it after working for years with other software will complain about its user interface. But honestly, it is, it's, it's UI user interface is right up there with the commercial stuff. Uh, people complaining about Blender's UI today are pretty much just complaining that it isn't like the 3D package that they already know. I think there's a little bit of that in complaints about the UIs of other open source software packages as well. Uh, although to be fair, most of the open source digital media software isn't developed by such an extensive team as Blender. So comparing them to Blender isn't entirely fair. Um, so I, I do that a lot myself too. I get frustrated over slow development on, um, other open source projects because I'm so used to how quickly Blender develops, but Blender's team is ex is very extensive. They are very well organized and uh, it's a beautiful thing, but it's, yeah, it's, you cannot hold all open source projects to that standard. Um, in fact, that brings me to GIMP. I mean, I was frustrated a lot by slow development on GIMP. Uh, GIMP has improved in recent years in its development because they have more people working on it now and that's been fantastic. So as for GIMP, uh, I use it a lot for uh, at work and at home. I've been using it almost as long as I've been using Blender. When I started at my current planetarium job in uh, 2000, Oh boy, 21 years ago, right? We had an outdated installation of Photoshop on one workstation. 
GIMP allowed me to do graphics work on other workstations when that one was in use. After a few years, I was granted a newer Photoshop installation on a newer workstation at work. And uh, this was one of the early creative suites, you know, before the uh, Adobe Cloud. I discovered that GIMP was loading a lot faster than Photoshop was loading, so I still ended up using it more frequently uh, because if I needed something uh, quick, I needed something that loaded quick. Now for GIMP, I hated that it wasn't all in one window, uh, that all of the components were in separate floating windows. Uh, eventually that got changed um, and it made my life easier. Uh, in fact, it, you had to go into a setting to change it every time. And so a lot of people didn't realize that it was changed. Uh, let's see, uh, years later here, I've been thrilled that uh, GIMP finally got a dark theme. That was kind of nice. Now these were two cases where I wanted GIMP to behave more like the current version of Photoshop. But in my case, using GIMP so much led me to dislike Photoshop's UI because I wanted it to be more like GIMP. Funny how that works, isn't it, right? So, um, that well, that's why uh, using GIMP so much has made it difficult for me to learn Krita. Krita appears to be developed for uh, not only image manipulation, but also for digital drawing and painting. And I really want to get into that more. But the fact that I'm so often pressed for time in needing to create graphics has meant that I uh, reach toward that GIMP icon every time instead of going to Krita. Let's see, what others besides Blender and Game? Oh, uh, Inkscape. Yes. So looking at Inkscape, mostly I hear complaints from users who find it too complex when they are accustomed to the free online web apps for vector graphics. And, and I can't blame them. I mean, it's really intimidating to look at a piece of software with all these buttons and be like, oh, I don't know. What, do I, what does all this stuff do? I've just learned to get past that myself. But uh, yeah, I can definitely understand that. So, um, you know, the users who complain about Inkscape because it's too complex when they first look at it, well, they wouldn't like Adobe Illustrator any more than Inkscape because it too is very complex. Um, and of course, people coming from Adobe Illustrator aren't going to like Inkscape because it's so different from Adobe Illustrator. For me, I do use Illustrator at work a little bit for shared projects with others who are using Illustrator, but otherwise I use Inkscape. And the reason for that is because I have it on all my machines, uh, Windows and Linux, both. I, I have it installed there, so that's uh, great for me to use. Now, Inkscape released version 1.0 recently. Um, now, their numbering system started very low and went in very teeny tiny increments. So uh, it has been developed for a long time. Um, so it's not like brand spanking new uh, as far as projects go. But yes, they've released version 1.0 recently. I haven't delved into the new version too deeply yet, but I'm looking forward to it. Um, it is different enough from Illustrator in its UI that anyone trying to switch will, of course, not be happy, as I mentioned. Uh, but the help menu includes built-in tutorials that are themselves SVG files, scalable vector graphics files. And that is a refreshing change from video tutorials popping up when a text tutorial would be easier for me to peruse to find what I'm looking for. For the moment, I'm pleased to say that Inkscape has a dark theme now, which was uh, my biggest complaint of recent times. So looking at Blender, GIMP, and Inkscape, 
I guess I defend them a lot by saying that they continually improve the UIs and most complaints are really that they aren't exact clones of their commercial counterparts. Blender does move more swiftly in its development, but honestly, GIMP and Inkscape have both picked up the pace in recent years. Um, what about others? Do I have actual user experience complaints about any of the tools I use? Yes, yes, I do have a few. Um, audacity. For the love of all that's holy audacity, why control numbers for zooming? Why not the scroll wheel or control plus or minus keys or something like that? I mean, I love Audacity and I'm using it to record this podcast right now, but but still. Um, oh, what else? Oh, like uh, Olive, an open source compositor that looked like it was growing into a nice alternative to After Effects. But they paused the project and are completely changing it from layer based to node based. And that broke my heart. It did. Because uh, I really wanted a good layer based. Um, I mean, yes, I use OpenShot Video Editor for some things, but I was really wanting something more powerful. Uh, in any case, um, you know, if I wanted node based, I can use Blender's compositor uh, because I'm already so familiar with Blender. Or if I really want to get into the heavy stuff, I can use Natron, which um, holds up really well user interface wise to um, the commercial package Nuke. Um, you know, I'll still give uh, all of a shot when the new version comes out. Um, so we'll, we'll, we'll see, but uh, yeah, it kind of broke my heart because I was really looking for a layer-based alternative. So my personal best example of great software with a difficult UI would probably be uh, Hoogan. Uh, for photo stitching, it is still the only open source game in town that I know of. Um, the UI has improved since I started using it in 2009, but it is still pretty rough. Now, Hoogan can be set up to run from a command line, and that allows me to stitch sequences of images for video if I want. Um, I have performed tests with it and have been pleased with the results. Getting it set up with a sample set of images from this... Um, from the sequence is the tedious part, but once that PTO file is set up, then the hard part for me is remembering where I put my bash scripts uh, or bat files uh, that I used for performing the operation on all the files. Uh, I still run to Hoogan for still image stitching because I'm used to it and because I can install it on any of my machines. To be fair to the project, the developers don't tout Hoogan as a software package, but as a cross-platform panoramic imaging tool chain. While the UI is still pretty bleh, the reliability of results has kept me happy in using it, but Hoogan might be the one project left that I wouldn't use if I had to pay for it. I suppose I could include open space as a project where I'm not happy with the user interface, but it is such a young project that I think I'm being too impatient. Um, it's taking me longer to learn than I'd like. Oh, I, ha I hate to admit that, but yes, uh, I admit that. Now, part of that is my tendency to jump right into the hardest parts before I learn stuff I'm most likely to use every day. And part of that is how I see open space as one of the most powerful projects out there, having the greatest potential for open source planetariums out there. 
and I do want to be a part of that. So um, there are commercial front ends being developed for it, which I think is a very good thing because it will get more people using open space and that will help to keep it going. So, um, you know, stay tuned for the open space because it's, it's got the power and uh, I will learn it. I will. It's just taking longer than I thought. So over the years, right, the ups and downs for me have come and gone. And the differences in experience for me between commercial and open source software have, have actually blurred. For instance, QGIS. At one point, I had to compile it myself on Linux to get uh, GDAL support, which was needed for 3D maps. A few months later, the new version had it built in, so I didn't need to mess with it. Um, another example is my annoyance at uh, open source projects that aren't multi-platform, but that comes from a place of me being spoiled since most uh, commercial software isn't multi-platform, so I can't really compare there. But, oh, I do praise those that are, so you'll hear me, you know, I'm, I'm not against commercial software. Um, so, and, and, and not all open source software can be made multi-platform. I mean, it's true. You, some just can't. Like, um... Okay, with open space, we can compile that for Linux if we want. The, the materials are all there, but the full feature Worldwide Telescope can only ever be Windows. It's just it's, just, it's using architecture that is unique to Windows. Oh, and uh, those blurred differences between commercial and open source software, thinking about uh, support. Now, if your commercial software package has issues in terms of bugs or hardware compatibility, you contact customer service and depending on your user contract, they will either help you out or use your report as data to hopefully improve the product. How responsive the company is depends on the company, the product line, the user category you fall into, etc. Often, the best help comes not from the company, but from user forums, where other users can uh, get, uh, where you can get troubleshooting help from other users or get advice on workarounds. At the very least, users can find out if they are the only ones to have that same problem. And if your open source software package has issues in terms of bugs or hardware compatibility, you might report through the project's bug tracking system, or more likely, uh, you go to a user forum where other users help, and sometimes the developers themselves may jump in and ask questions to help figure it out. So the, the best support uh, really isn't that different anymore between uh, the two types. So for so most support now for open source and closed source commercial packages is through a helpful user base with some input from developers. So definitely blurred there. For most projects, if there's a feature or component that is lacking um, for open source software, I can try building it myself. In the case of both open and closed source, usually I just have to wait and it does get implemented. A positive with most open source projects is that uh, you often get a no answer to a feature request right away. Uh, while disappointing, at least it lets me move on instead of hanging on hoping for it. My biggest problem in recent years with commercial software has been things moving to a web-based or subscription models. Uh, that means problems with internet connections can stop you in your tracks. At least most software packages now have the option of saving files in an open format since uh, it's really horrible having files of content that you've created but now have no access to. Perhaps for me, there's a feeling of being a part of the project when I'm using open source software, as opposed to being a mass consumer. I 
don't know about that for sure, though, because I'm, I'm not thinking about that stuff when I'm actually using the software. I'm just making stuff. And that does it for this week's show. It's been fun. We should do this again next week. Be sure to check out the show notes on my blog, fostome.com. Till next time, be well, be creative, and be free. Be FOSS.